here, I think we even have a flood watch. And so the title of our message today is The Great Flood. The Great Flood. So this will be a little bit more Bible study and, and, and uh, discussions, but we're going to turn to the book of Genesis chapter 6. The book of Genesis chapter 6. Now maybe you've heard stories over time, and one of the passages of Scripture we're going to review today has caused some confusion, possibly, to some. And uh, today will be an opportunity maybe to just learn some biblical, some biblical truths, or some biblical literacy, we might call it. But in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, let us begin a reading. We'll be reading from the New King James Version. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever for he is indeed flesh yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits and it's height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life, everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort in the ark. To keep them alive with you, they shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind, will come to you to keep them alive. 
and it shall take for and you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten shall gather it to yourselves and it shall be food for you and for them thus Noah did according to all that God commanded so he did may God add his blessing to the reading of his word now there's a couple pieces and passages of scripture in there that some kind can have and challenge some difficulty and it begins in the beginning of chapter 6. The beginning of chapter 6 as we begin to read through those sections. The passage starts out that the sons of God saw the daughters of men in verse 2. It talks about when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all they chose. <clears throat> some translations have had some struggles with some of the way these words are translated. And even when it talks about giants, in some of the commentary I looked at, I, I leaned heavily on Adam Clark, and you can look that up if you're interested, Adam Clark, last name C-L-A-R-K-E. But as you look at that, you think about the fact that we are, if we are right with God, we are considered part of the family of God. And so they would look at, the, looking at this from the concept that those of Seth saw the daughters of Cain, and they were beautiful. So, why Seth and Cain? Do you recall that Cain killed Abel? Killed his brother. This is after the fall, after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Abel was killed by Cain, his brother. That's a whole other story we could go into. But Cain was cursed, and Cain had a mark, and the daughters of men, Cain, versus the sons of Seth, the sons of God. So just think of it part of the concepts of the family of God today. We would be sons of God because we're joint heirs with Jesus. And so as we looked at the commentary and we looked at how those words were carried and uh, some thoughts around the the Hebrew there seems what that is is implying, and then the the word giants, because some have taken as far as to in some translations use the word that they were angels, that the angels got with the daughters, and in the economies of God, I guess you would say, or in the, the structure of things, that just jumps out so abstract and so obscure, and you're like, in the totality of Scripture. This just doesn't fit. And so as we try to understand it and we look in there, there seems to be, there were problems in this passage as they translated, and they translated things to the word giant. And as I was reading Adam Clark, he talked about how it's translated several Hebrew words into giant. And here in the giant, they, you will see as you look in verse 4 when we read in the New King James, it says, men who were of old, men of renown. 
And so you see that same kind of things. There were giants. There were giants. They were the the fallen. Is what the word behind that it, it says. If you look in some of your your notes that you would see, it's a nephitim, nephilim. I'm sorry, fallen or mighty ones. And so sometimes it's translated there as giants. They're heroes. People had lifted them up as heroes, and and uh, the right things that they should do. The people to look to. And so you have the sons of God and the sons of man. You have the mingling in of Seth's descendants, those that were following God, and Cain's descendants, those weren't. And they were producing men of renown men that people were looking to. And you think about some of the corruption that can happen when we, we marry in the concept of not intermarrying from the sense we might think of intermarrying, but we think of the, the not equally yoked. And we think of Solomon and how he was dragged down by going after women from various religious cultures, various religious aspirations. And here you have the sons of God with the daughters of men. And it seems that you have that same kind of activity that's taken place. Because in any regards, even though they were men of renown, men that maybe people had put up as heroes, we get to verse 5 and it says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were, was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man who I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But, verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So the men of the renowned, the men that people had set up as heroes, the giants of the time, it doesn't seem like God was very impressed. There was this evil intent, and it was continually. It's like there wasn't any goodness to be there. They just... And God said, it's enough. It's enough. You've done everything you've wanted to do, and you, the, the, the things that you've lifted up as aspirations, as heroes, as, as giants, the things that you look to, it's enough. It's enough. Verse 3, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. For he is indeed flesh, that his days shall be 120 years. Some commentators would look at that and say, at least I think it was Adam Clark, looking at that, that concept of there was a period of time and it didn't change. It just a period of time of striving. And God said, it's enough. 
but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, Noah, this is geology of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. God will provide for those that walk with him. God will provide for those that will walk with him. And so whatever flood you're in the midst of, and as you look around, there is a flood of immorality that's taking place. And probably some of the same things that were happening in Noah's times, we could, you could have a debate and say, but some of the same things might be happening today. Everyone's out for themselves. And it seems even more so that the underlying graciousness or courtesies are going away. That depravity is breeding more depravity. But God sees those that walk with him and will make a way. And will make a way. So as we continue in this, that now Noah is instructed to build an ark. Going to build an ark. And it's interesting to note that, and we read it for you, but I want to highlight it here, is that it was going to be Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives. There has been some, I've been told, that or at least there's a thought out there, the concept relating to how the corruption was and, and that um, the offspring of the sons of God and the sons of men were of a certain type of people and that Noah wasn't that kind of people. I would submit to you that the daughters were also from outside. They weren't of the offspring of Noah, from what I can tell. It doesn't say either way, but I don't think so. But it's Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives, and Noah and his wife, that God's going to bring into the ark. Now we'll look at the ark here. I, you've probably heard about the ark before, um, but let's just call out a couple things in here for uh, insight. Um, to enhance our biblical literacy. When you run across in the Bible, uh, verse 15, and this is how you shall make it, the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. You might say, cubits, why don't they just convert that? Why don't they just convert that to inches and, and feet? Some Bibles do that. The reason why you might not choose to do so is because it wasn't an exact measure. The other reason you might not choose to do so is it's saying a cubit, and that's what it is, a cubit. Um, and so to be true to the scripture you might fall along, but you might be like, well, what's a cubit? A cubit is generally thought to be about 18 inches. It's thought to be about 18 inches. <clears throat> but if, as time permits, as time goes on, you might say, okay, how do I know? And somebody says, well, it's this long. 
And if, a, uh, if, you, uh, if over time they have to have another translation to say it's a different length, and then people will say, well, the length of the ark has changed over years. Actually, the length of the ark was a cubit. It's the forearm. The cubit is the forearm. As you know, different people have different lengths of forearms. I believe it's the, the equivalent of the le- length of your femur. And so when you convert it directly to feet, you're making an assumption in your translation. And so some people don't think about that when they're doing translations and things. They wanted to make it easier to read, but you can make it less accurate. And in this case, I would submit that you probably want to leave it the cubit because it's the length of the forearm and it gives you insights of if I had different people building something, it might vary. They may not have the standard. Maybe they had a standard that they took the stick and said, okay, hey, Shem, Ham, and Japheth go along and say, okay, we're going by dad's forearm. On this project, we're going by dad's forearm. That's what we're going to use for the measure. Measured out a stick, there it is, boom. That's our cubit. They don't have a tape measure. Maybe they use string, I don't know. But God gives them instructions to make it a cubit. So that's what a cubit is. It's the forearm, probably about 18 inches. A span is this, in case you run into that. That's a span. People have different size hands. You can kind of see where you get into trouble with some of that. People have different, different measures, but that was a span. So they built this ark, and God tells them how to make it and where, what floors to put on it. How, that it would be three floors and, and about the door and the window. And I want to draw your attention to verse 17. In verse 17 it says, Behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. The word there for floodwaters is, as it's my understanding, that maybe one other place, maybe one other place, it meant something different, but every other place, it meant the great deluge. It meant the Noah flood. The word is there for the Noah flood. It's not just floods in general, it's the Noah flood. There are some that would debate and have the concept that it was a regional flood. Maybe you've run into people that talk about that, that it's a regional flood. <clears throat> that, that it wasn't over all the worth, it was just a regional flood. So a couple challenges with that. He said he was going to destroy all flesh. So did God not mean that he was going to destroy all and just the two that were going to the ark? How would he do that with a regional flood? And when God says he's going to cover all the face of the earth, people want to say, well, it was just the known earth, the known world at that time. See how they went back into that? But if that was the case, why, why didn't Noah just become the great shepherd and God said, listen, Instead of taking all these years to build the flo- the, this great ark, I want you and your family to go to this spot 
that's outside of this regional flood, and then you'll be saved. Because you have to assume then that only in this certain part of the world did the people exist. Hey, Noah, I want you to go over and I want you to be saved. And I'm only going to pass judgment on the people in this zone. And I'm going to make all the people come into this zone and kill them, or I'm going to kill people there. But no, I want to preserve you, so I want you to make a journey, like Abraham. And I want you to make a journey, and I want you to go over in a place with outside the regional flood zone, and I'm going to send some of the animals, and we'll keep you safe over there. They want to have a regional flood. Why might they want to have a regional flood? Because it goes better with the evolutionary narrative. Because a lot of cultures have a flood story. But if I... It causes some issues when I talk about the evolutionary narrative and how many animals... And how do I get them in the ark? And, and how do I deal with the evolution? Because the evolution has to go all the way. But if I have a great flood, wouldn't that interrupt my evolutionary timeline? Be careful. Because what we seem to find in Christian circles is we try to re-explain the Bible based on our knowledge of what we call science. And because, possibly because our lack of understanding of the Bible, we adhere to the science. So we look at the Bible through the lens of science. So we elevate science above the Bible. Instead of looking at science through the lens of Bible. And science has changed over time. But I think as we read scripture, we start to understand more and more about the way physical world works things start to make more sense. But we seem to have changed some of the definition of science, the science that says, hey, I have a hypothesis that I'm going to test it, and then I'm going to test that hypothesis through various tests, repeatable tests, and see if I get the repeatable results to see if I know how I'm explaining what's happening, if I know what was happening or not. And then based on those results, then I start understanding, oh, gravity. See, gravity is science. But we've expended science now that 60% of people will probably something, but we're not sure. But it's mostly likely. See, that gets a little flaky. And then we start extending science to politics, political science, so that we took a sample of 1,000 people, and based on the sample of 1,000 people, we've determined that all millions and millions of people in the United States have decided they want to do this. That's conjecture. That's not science. 
And then we call science things like social studies and things that a sociological science is like, this is where people feel, and science tells us that that means, see how far it's went from something I can measure, something I can repeat to, I think it could possibly maybe could mean maybe something. But when we look here and they want to say that it's a regional flood because we're trying to fit the narrative of what we understand, we think we do. But if we look at what the evidence is through the lens of the Bible, we get a better understanding. Because in some of the evolutionary scientists, they look back and they got a piece of a bone that looks like this. And they'll say, well, that probably means this, and then I can draw this. And this will probably mean that, and I draw like this. And I, oh, so they built out an entire body from a tooth. Or they find the skull of one person and say, oh, there, there, that's a type of man, and he's got a big forehead, and you ever seen that cartoon? Is that it shows a, uh, some people around a campfire, and it's got the one guy that's, he's abnormally larger than the other, and his Heads a certain, it's just different than the rest of them. But that's the one they find and say, well, that must have been what everybody was. But it's the same thing. They go back and they make conjecture. There's a certain, a lot of author's interpretation. But then we as Christians pick that up and say, oh, well, that's science. We forgot to question and ask. And see, as students of the, the Bible, we read and we're like, well, why is it this way? And we question and we ask. And we look to the original language. And we look to the rest of the Bible. And the Bible explains itself, but we question and we ask. We reason. We pray. We get insights from God. But our caution to those of us in Christian is don't elevate science above the scripture, don't elevate the tangible and medicine and what God is able to do limit by what you can understand because God can still heal. I spoke to a gentleman um, a couple days ago or within the last couple days and he talked about how he had a cancer and he had been going in as a child, and they'd taken the x-rays and x-rays, and they had tracked it, and he went, and someone lays hands on him, and God healed him. Went back to the doctor, and they kept having x-rays, because they, where's it going? It's gone! It's gone! God had healed him. Especially in our culture, we want to do away with the supernatural, what God is possible with, we want to do with, away with what is above to what we can control because we don't want to believe that there is something greater than us, that we don't want to believe that there's a God that we're accountable to. We don't want to, we want to be our own gods. And everything has to be the way we understand it. See, this flood was the... Uh, the flood. The flood. So when, talk, when they talk about the flood, it's just the flood. It had a word 
for the flood. Think about it this way, for those of us in Ohio, it's not just an Ohio State University. It's just not a university in the state of Ohio. It's just not, you know, you could call a university, even our own Ohio Christian University, oh, that's an uh, Ohio State University, kind of. But it's the Ohio State University. They want to make sure you know it's the Ohio State University. Well, this is the flood. It's got its own word. I don't believe it was a regional flood. It's the flood that God used to cleanse and start some things over. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God made a way. So let's turn to the book of Genesis, still in Genesis, a couple cha- chapters, and let's look at verse, uh, chapter 8, and we're going to jump ahead to verse 20. This is after the flood. There's lots of things we can learn about the flood. There's lots of things we can understand of why we have a north and a south pole with all the frozen waters. We can understand why things were flash frozen. We can understand why there's a certain layers in the geological layers if we understand the flood. We're not going to go into all those today. But chapter 8, verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. This is after they'd come out from the ark. And took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a smoothing, a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and winter, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. For you shall not eat flesh with this life that is its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand of reckoning from the hand of every beast, I require it, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, my, by blood his, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and said to his sons with them, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I made between me and you every living thing that is with you for perpetual generations. 
I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Several insights that we come to find in this script, passages of Scripture. He made an altar to the Lord. I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. The ground had been cursed. But he says, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, we're still in that carnal nature. We're still in that me first. In verse 22 he says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. He calls out some of the, the seasons, but they're called out in a different way than what we might be used to. I used that scripture when I took a nuclear predicament class. You might be wondering, what's a nuclear predicament class? I grew up in the Cold War, and we talked about what would happen if we, there was a global war, and we talked about a nuclear winter, and I wrote a paper to my college professor, and I put on the end of it, and I quoted the scripture, because they talk about a nuclear winter where there would be such a haze over that everything would be cold, and it would do away with the seasons. It was a nuclear winter, and I said, I don't think that's going to happen because my Bible says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Huh. He says, well, that's nice that you have that hope. That's all he could say. That's what he graded and put in the paper. We can have that hope. People are fearing that their life is going to end because of global warming. I don't think they have this hope. I don't think they have the hope of Jesus. I've told you before, there's going to be a global warming, and we'll talk about that in, the middle, in a minute, and we'll find that in 2 Peter, but we're not there yet. But we go back into the Scripture. It says, let me just pull that out, I apologize. I wanted to pull another piece out. He says in verse 3, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. We are now permitted, God is saying, meat is for food. I know there's vegan and vegetarian and all those things, but if you're looking for in the Bible, the Bible says here that every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Not just the vegetables, but you can have meat. Just to clear that up. 
And for those of you who like, have issues with eating pork and things, go to the New Testament, and Peter will tell you about it. It's okay to eat pork, too. I know some people will struggle with that, but from what I've read in Scripture, this is where we're allowed to eat meat. Because I know sometimes we run into people and they miss this part of the passage of Scripture. So just throw that out there. We're not allowed to kill people. There's prohibition from eating blood. As we think about the blood of Jesus for the remission of sin, without the shedding of blood there's no remissions. There might be some tied into that, but we also know eating blood is, uh, you don't like to, you know there's, it's dangerous to eat raw, raw meat, right? Think about that too. So we found some truths that are in the Old Testament around Noah that helps us to understand our world and understand what we should do and to give us hope. And the hope that God gives us and tells us, says, I'm not going to destroy you this way again, is the rainbow. Now we know some have taken the rainbow and tried to demonstrate it's the cause for their immorality. But the rainbow is God's promise. They can wave all the flags they want, but they can't put the rainbow in the sky. We go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 7. Let's read the preface to this as we roll down to verse 7. It's going to be what we're going to highlight. In 2 Peter chapter 3 it says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. I'm sure we can see that today. Verse 4, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget. That the word of God, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, for which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for a fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Remember back, he's saying, it's not as it has been from creation, because God brought judgment. You forgot about the flood. By which the word that then existed perished, being flooded with water, verse 7 but the heavens and the earth which were now preserved by the same word. In other words, God made a promise. Verse 8, But behold, do not forget this one thing, that which the Lord one day is as, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in them, it will be burned up. 
Therefore shall all these things will be dissolved. What matter of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He's judged before. He wiped out through the flood. Then he saw the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he weighed fire and brimstone down, and he wiped it out. And Peter's reminding them, don't forget. Don't forget. He's judged in the past. He's brought the fire and brimstone. He's going to destroy the earth and the elements. This makes you think about, you know, after you burn something, you got something left behind. This is going to be some kind of... Now, when he says elements, does it's elements the way we think of elements? But it seems like it's going to be a consuming fire. It's going to be gone. Based on what God has done and how he has been gracious to a point, Verse 11, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Let us be reminded that in the midst of the moral civil war we have for our society that's taking place, where we champion morality and whatever we define morality as may not be aligned with what Scripture says. Man's morality... But what virtues can we find in scriptures that we can live up to? And how do we measure up? But in the midst of all that, we like Noah can find grace in the eyes of the Lord and he can provide us that ark and he has through the blood of Jesus Christ that we can have eternity with him. And there is coming a judgment day much grander than what we saw with the flood of the earth and what much coarser than what they, the fire and blown uh, brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah. But we have this hope in Jesus that we can have eternal life and there will be a new heaven and a new earth that he will create for us to dwell on. Some might not be aware of that, but it's throughout the New Testament. It's in Revelation. A new heaven and a new earth. So judgment is coming. We just want to be prepared and live the life and as we look at science and the influences, people try to pull God and put him underneath our own wisdom, our own wisdom of science, and whatever we might want to call science, and whatever we might think. But look at the world through the Scripture, through the Word of God, instead of letting the world shape your view of God. The deists, would like to say God is out there and not intervening in the things of men, but I would say to you that he is. He sent his only begotten son. He sent Jesus, and he has intervened like he did in the flood, and he will do it again. So in him, in this power, we have our hope. In the midst of this perverse generation, we find ourselves. May God help us to grab onto that hope. May God help us to bear the cautions, and may God help us to seek knowledge from him 
not the knowledge and wisdom from the wicked hearts of men. Let's be standing together. Father God, we do thank you for those that have been in church with us today. We thank you, Father, for those that are going to be joining online and listening. We pray, Father, that we all might seek your wisdom, your will, your way, not to allow what you have put in our hearts to be perverted, what we read in your scriptures to be perverted by man's wisdom, by the limits of man's understanding, where they mix in their imagination of what they think might have happened, what they say would be Millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years ago. Filling in the gaps with their imagination. But, Father, as your scripture says, the cautions of man's imagination. Help us to fall back on the facts of scripture. That, Jesus, you died. You were buried. You were risen again for us. Help us to take hope in the fact that we can find grace and have found grace in the eyes of the Lord and help us to walk in it. Bless us now, we pray, as we go our separate ways. May we be encouraged by your word. May we be enlightened by your word. And we, may we find hope and rest in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.